My wife, Brooke, can attest that I don't like people telling me what to do. If there's a sign that says, don't climb over that fence, my natural bent is I want to climb over that fence. How dare the people who built that fence tell me that I can't go past it? Don't they know who I am? Oftentimes, if someone is telling me what to do and I disagree with them, there'll be a confrontation. So you guys could probably use reverse psychology with me if you want me to get me to do something. As some in this church witnessed or heard about even this past month, I had a confrontation with those in authority of a basketball league that I play and coach in. I had fouled out of the game, and instead of going to the bench as one is supposed to do after they foul out, I instead let the referees know that I disagree with what they were saying, and then I also let the organizers know in a not-so-polite and submissive way. I was then given a technical foul and ejected from the court. Sadly, this didn't happen many years ago. This happened just the other month. Even though I've been a Christian for years, I'm still a sinner who's seeking to put to death my sinful nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that the Christians in Crete needed to be reminded to be submissive to rulers and authorities and show courtesy towards all people. I also need this reminder. And I think all of us need that reminder again and again as we face situations in life that we're tempted to go back to our old sinful nature. So this brings us to our passage this morning from Titus chapter 3. You'll be greatly served if you follow along with me in your Bibles, if you turn to Titus. Uh, We as a church believe that God's word is central in everything that we do. So we go through book by book, not because we want you to hear as pastors our ideas and thoughts, but we want you to hear God's word. So please follow along with me as we go through Titus chapter 3. Titus is near the end of your Bibles, uh, right after 2 Timothy and before Philemon and Hebrews, if you're not familiar. We will be concluding the letter today. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to uh, the previous sermons, you can find them on our church website. As a reminder, Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Titus worked with Paul in sharing the gospel in different regions, and he helped him share the gospel on this island uh, of Crete, which is just off the coast of Greece. Churches have been established, and Paul is telling Titus he needs to help the churches by appointing elders to shepherd, lead, and protect the people who are surrounded by a pagan culture, as well as false teachers that are teaching for shameful gain what is not true. Not only are there elders called to be sound in, in faithfulness and character, but we also see from chapter 2 that all believers in every walk of life are called to live a different way from, than those around them. They are called to be self-controlled because of God's grace appearing. So the theme of this letter is that right teaching should live to uh, living a righteous life. So follow along with me as I read from Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So our main point this morning is that our lives and reputations are radically transformed because of God's great salvation. Our lives and reputations are radically transformed because of God's great salvation. And this leads us to five points that I'm going to have for us this morning. Don't worry. Though some will be shorter than others. Uh, so firstly, in the first couple verses, we have our reputation as followers of Christ to the watching world. And then in verse 3, point number 2, our reputation before Christ. And then in verses 4 to 8, our lives and reputation are changed because of God's work. And fourthly, verses 9 to 11, our reputation as peacemakers and lastly, in verses 12 to 15, our reputation as joyful servants. So I'll go through those again as we walk through this together. So look at verses 1 and 2. Our reputation as followers of Christ to a watching world. Most everyone has a reputation. Reputation is what someone is known for. People can have good reputations or bad reputations. Some have a reputation for being gentle and kind to everyone, others for being quick-tempered and arrogant. No one has a perfect reputation because we're all sinners and our sin spills out for others to see. If after becoming a Christian we could be perfect and have no more struggles, Paul wouldn't have to write for Christians to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remember the false teachers from chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, if you just look over in chapter 1 there? Paul is telling the believers here in chapter 3 to display the opposite character from these false teachers. We see that the false teachers are insubordinate in chapter 1, verse 10. Christians here in chapter 3 are to be submissive and obedient. The false teachers are unfit for any good work, we see in verse 16 of chapter 1. And the believers are to be ready for every good work. The false teachers are empty talkers and deceivers. The believers are to speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling and to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
I think maybe a better translation of perfect courtesy towards all people would be emphasizing gentleness and compliance towards everyone. Oftentimes, we can think of gentleness as weakness and just allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. But gentleness is actually supernatural strength to show kindness and humility in the face of opposition. As the wise poet Kenny Rogers sings, I'm not going to sing it for you, I hope you're old enough to understand, son, you don't have to fight to be a man. It's a great song. I don't think it means we never stand up for ourselves or allow people to walk over us. Obviously, the greatest example of gentleness, kindness, is, is Jesus himself. As many were against him, his own people, he never reacted in revenge and hatred, but instead he prayed for his enemies and ultimately gave his life for them. I think it's thinking about even people in our church that show this great example of gentleness and kindness and humility. I think someone that st- stuck out to me, I didn't tell you I was going to say this, but Aaron, Aaron Zasik. Um, I've seen him in multiple situations in sports demonstrate kindness and humility despite things happening that are unfair. And I think his, his, he's modeling a character uh, of Christ through his life and his attitude. I think in this context, though, in Titus, Paul is talking about submitting to governing authorities. He's encouraging Titus to tell believers how they are to live under the authority of the governing rulers. Remember, the pagan Cretan culture was known for a lack of self-control, and the Christians should be living and behaving with restraint and obedience to the civil authorities. Now, we do see in the Bible and other points in history, there are times to reject and rebel against the government or the state if they're clearly standing against the law of God. You can think of multiple examples in Scripture. You think of, in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives disobeying the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. You can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeying the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and Daniel, and the apostles not obeying the Jewish uh, religious leaders when they told them to stop speaking about Jesus. Or even in uh, more recent history, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German pastor rebelling against the, the Nazis. One commentator says, Paul himself would demonstrate by his death that when one stands in opposition to God, it becomes time to obey God and not human authorities. As followers of Jesus, we want to demonstrate gentleness towards others. This sounds easy to say, but we all know there are tense moments where this is difficult. It can be what, when our kids, uh, how we react to our kids uh, when, when things are difficult and we start yelling or speaking harshly instead of reacting in patient gentleness. I can testify that this is very difficult for me. I need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to help me. I would encourage you in just thinking about putting this into practice, uh, meeting with another member of this church even this week, and ask them if they think you're demonstrating a life of gentleness. If you feel like people don't really know you in this body, I would encourage you to invite people in and allow yourself to be known by other members of this church. Part of joining this body is allowing yourself to be known and to know others. And that goes beyond just gathering on Sunday mornings. It might be awkward at first or out of the ordinary to try to meet with another member of this church for coffee or for lunch or having someone over for dinner. 
But we should strive to do this as members of this body. This church community that God has given us is a means of God's grace in our lives. And we should seek to use it so that we can grow in Christ together. This leads us to point number three, uh, point number two from verse number three. Our reputation before Christ. And what I mean by that is uh, before people are saved, before people encounter Christ. Our reputation before Christ. What were Paul and Titus known for before they became Christians? It says they were foolish and disobedient. They were led astray. What do you think led Paul and Titus down this terrible path of this description of, in verse 3? Maybe they had a hard childhood. Maybe their parents were mean to them. Maybe it was their environment. We see that actually from this verse, it's, it's their own passions and pleasures. This is actually true of every single person at one time or another apart from Christ. Even if you come to faith as a small child, before you become a Christian, this verse describes your life. So many of these characteristics mentioned played out in Paul's life before he was saved on the Damascus Road. He was enslaved to his murderous desires to imprison and kill Christians. Oftentimes we can blame the poor or sinful decisions we make on someone else or the circumstance. But from the very beginning, in the garden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, we see the responsibility was theirs. Even though they tried to blame God, each other, and the devil, the, the reason we always go astray is because our sin nature within us. Our passions and pleasures within us are selfish, defiled, hateful, jealous, and corrupt. We see this throughout the scripture. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Jesus explains in Mark 7, our hearts are what defile us and all sorts of evil flows out from them. So why is Paul reminding himself, Titus, and the other Christians and Crete what they once were like? Doesn't sound very nice. Remembering what we were and how God has saved us causes us to be thankful to God, turn away from sin currently in our lives, and strive for humility. We remember that we didn't save ourselves. We need God to, to help us even continue living the Christian life. And so we remember how God has saved us. So these seven characteristics were in the past, but thanks be to God, Paul says something has happened to change them. And I'll just say, if, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, do you realize that this verse, verse three, describes your life? As I said just earlier, this describes every person's life naturally apart from Christ's work. We're enslaved to our own sin. We're naturally disobedient and deserving of God's everlasting wrath. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. That brings us to point three, verses four through eight. Our lives and reputations are changed because of God's work. Our lives and reputations are changed because of God's work, verses four through eight. We saw in chapter two, 
God's grace appearing from verse 11 of chapter 2, Jesus appearing in verse 13, and here we come uh, to chapter 3 and we have God's goodness and his loving kindness appearing. So in the midst of this wickedness and evil in the hearts of humanity, God's goodness and loving kindness appears. How do we see God's goodness and love here? Well, we see he saves. This is an amazing explanation of why God saves. And I think this goes against our natural way we think as humans. According to most world religions, God saves because we try to be good enough. We go to church or we go to our mosque or our temple every week. We read our holy books. We share about what we believe in. We got baptized. We're religious. None of these things save us. It says in verse 4, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In Hebrews, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So apart from the mercy of God in our lives, we cannot live out a righteous life in God's eyes. It might be possible to do some good here and there, but without faith in Christ, that good does not please God. It's a great thing when human beings show kindness and compassion to one another. But this good we see from this passage and others in scripture that it's only possible to do acts of righteousness if we have come into saving relationship with Jesus. We are hardwired as humans to think that we can be saved by our good deeds. And that's because of the sin nature within us, the pride within us. A lot of times we can assume we deserve mercy because we've been obedient or good. But actually, no one deserves God's mercy. That goes against the very definition of mercy. Mercy means we deserve to be punished, but we don't receive that punishment. How do we receive mercy from this passage? We see that it's by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, God's people, Israel, were continuously rebellious against God, going after idols. Time and time again, they turned against God. But God in his mercy promised to give them new hearts and a new spirit that would change them from the inside. Is this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit just a little behavior change? You change a little something, modify something in your life. It's, it's uh, the U 2.0 or whatever people say today. No, this is, this is not just a little behavior change. This is massive. This is transformation. This is not just praying a magical prayer or saying four sentences and, uh, or changing a few behaviors and boom, you're, you're a Christian. This is a work of God. Just as we see from John chapter 3, when Jesus talks with Nicodemus, that Nicodemus must be born again. Regeneration is just another word for explaining being born again, or the moment that you become a Christian. Nicodemus was a religious Bible teacher, and he needed to be born again. Two things happen as a result of being born again that we see from verse 7. One, we're, we're justified. We talked about that in the foundations class, what being justified means. And then we also become heirs of eternal life. 
What does it mean to be justified? It means we're declared righteous in God's sight. We're, we're not naturally righteous. Again, as we looked at in, in the class this morning, Romans 3 says, no one is righteous in God's sight. We are naturally unrighteous. As I shared in the beginning with my story, I'm not righteous in and of myself. I'm declared righteous by God because of the work of Jesus on my behalf. God sees me as pure and holy in his sight, and this is fully by his grace. This is a gift. The moment God's work of regeneration happens in someone's life, they are declared righteous and they become part of God's family. We are heirs and promised eternal life. Being heirs of eternal life is like God promising we will receive the inheritance. It's a guarantee, right? In some families, right, there's a, um, a lot of conflict or confusion or fighting over the inheritance. The will of the parent or grandparent isn't clear. It's not, this is not the way it is with God. He makes it, it perfectly clear in his word. He promises eternal life to his children. And we are called to believe God's promise. Paul emphasizes that what he is saying here in these verses, in verses four to eight, is true and trustworthy. What he is saying should be stressed and insisted upon. Paul is stressing the importance of the gospel here. This is the gospel message. Many of us have moved to this country to reach people with the gospel. I would challenge you, I know many of you are, but are you sharing this gospel with those you're coming in contact with? We all need to remember that it's not a method that will save people, but it's the power of God through his gospel message. Paul doesn't stress a magical method to reach the pagans. He insists upon the gospel. So we want to expose people to God's word, right? We want to get people reading God's word, people that, that don't know the Lord. And, and I think it's a great thing to seek to share stories of the Bible with people. But you don't want to stop. You don't want to just share a story from the Old Testament and, and stop there. You want to show your unbelieving friend how that points to Jesus Christ and how they can be saved. Sharing a story from the Old Testament without pointing it to Christ, you're just giving them some tips on how to live a moral life or sharing an interesting story. There's no power in that. We need to share Christ. We need to share how salvation is a free gift from God and can only be found in Jesus Christ. And people need to turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. We need to, we need to seek to do that. That should be our aim in this. And so Paul is stressing this. So let's stress and insist this on this with our friends and our neighbors that this is the truth. So what does this miracle of regeneration produce? Well, we've seen this throughout the book. It produces a changed life. As, as we've seen with the theme of this letter, someone who has been saved by God will live a life that's devoted to good works. Do you think you're going to heaven because you're good enough or religious, religious enough? Do you think you automatically get to go to heaven because your parents are Christian? Hear what God's word is saying here. The only way anyone is saved is because of the mercy and grace of God. So I'd urge you to believe that. 
Trust in the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Jesus suffered, died, and rose and ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to save sinners like us. So turn from your sin and believe in Christ. If you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your life will be changed and you will live a life that's producing good works. The good works do not and cannot save you. They are the result or the fruit of God saving you. This brings us to our fourth point from verses 9 through 11. Our reputation as peacemakers. Verses 9 to 11. Paul is going back to urging Titus to warn the believers of the false teachers. These false teachers seem to possibly be Jewish as they're emphasizing things from the law. What characterizes the false teachers here? What are they like? Well, we see they seek to cause and create division. They create arguments and discussions about the law that Paul says is worthless, foolish, and unprofitable. We don't know exactly what these arguments were about, but they had to do with the Old Testament law and genealogies. Really exciting stuff. Paul's point in these verses is that we want to be warned and stay away from divisiveness. The church is called to be unified in the truth of the gospel. That doesn't mean that there won't be disagreements or controversies at times, or even moments you might disagree with a decision we as the elders make. But there's a way to go about these disagreements that is not divisive. We see that Paul takes the divisive person very seriously, and he actually calls them to be removed from the church through church discipline. We don't see the detailed process of church discipline here, but we can assume that churches would be carrying that out. Uh, From Matthew 18, first the person is confronted individually, then they're confronted by multiple witnesses, and then it's told to the church. And if there's no repentance, the person is removed. For those of us who are members in this church, when, when you join this church, you're putting yourself under the authority of the elders as leaders and under the possibility of being disciplined if, if we persist in sin and there's no repentance. Church discipline is hard. This is not a, a fun process. But it's clearly what we're called to do and carry out as the church. We have a couple of church discipline issues we need to discuss this afternoon at our members meeting. Members of this body, I would urge you to come out this afternoon uh, for this. We have a responsibility to take members in and also to remove members who are under church discipline. This is, this is something that we've covenanted to do when you, when you join this church, and we should take this seriously. We don't seek to church discipline because we're angry or mad or we're just grouchy people, but because we're seeking to love the person and call them to repentance. In the past, in this church, we've disciplined a member for being divisive. There was slandering of uh, the elders in this church and members, and there was a refusal to repent. So we had to remove him from membership because we could no longer affirm that he was following Jesus Christ. We only discipline those who refuse to repent as they are proving they are self-condemned, warped, and sinful, like we see from this passage. And the prayer is that they would turn back to Christ. 
There are so many different ways we could be divisive today. It could be in regards to slandering others, writing things on social media, or it could be seeking to teach or persuade others of false doctrine. Thankfully, we've not had much of this in our church. So many of you here seek to promote peace and unity. And I, th- I want to encourage us to continue doing that and think of other ways that we can do that. So I think one way, when you see spiritual growth in your brother or sister, seek to encourage them in that. Tell them how you see them growing and serving others. Tell them how you see them growing in self-control or in teaching. Another uh, thing we could think about is when there are arguments or disagreements, that's going to happen in, in, in the body as you get to know people, right? There's going to be uh, disagreements or arguments or uh, at, time, at times. We want to seek to reconcile as soon as possible. Satan wants us to dwell in bitterness and revenge, but we know that this will not bring about peace and satisfaction. We should seek to initiate peace in relationships in this body because Christ has done the same for us. Those of us who are married here, when you have, when we have arguments or fights with our spouses, are we seeking to bring about reconciliation? Married men, I want to call and challenge us as leaders in the home to initiate confession and reconciliation. Maybe you think you're totally innocent in the situation. Well, I would encourage you to really examine yourself and seek ways you might need to repent and bring that up with your spouse. I know oftentimes when Brooke and I have arguments, I can think I'm totally right in the situation. Right, Brooke? I'm perfectly innocent. She's the one that needs to apologize to me. But then as I think about it, as I pray about it, I realize that even though I might be right, maybe my attitude, maybe my tone towards her was not right. I was not gentle. I was not caring in the conversation. So I need to repent. I need to repent of that and ask for forgiveness from her and from the Lord. As, as leaders in the home, Married men, we want to be initiating these conversations. And as Christians, everyone, we need to be showing this in the home, in the workplace, and in the church. This is what Christ has called us to. This is the changed life. This brings us to our last point, verses 12 to 15. Our reputation as joyful servants. As we have seen throughout the letter, Paul's emphasis on believing the truth of the gospel will lead to living a life devoted to good works. In the last few verses of the letter, he gets into the specifics of how believers can demonstrate good works. Paul is sending some companions, Artemis or Tychicus, who might be delivering the letter to Titus and taking the place of Titus, because Paul is calling Titus to meet him at Nicopolis. Paul is Uh, telling Titus and the churches to quickly send Zenus and Apollos to him in the Nicopolis where he's staying the winter. He He wants the church to care for Apollos and Zenus and their needs. So a way for the churches to live out what Paul has been telling them in this letter is to care for those who are laboring in the gospel. This is how they are helping in cases of need and bearing fruit. 
As believers in Christ, this should be our joy and desire to serve others, and especially those who are laboring to make the gospel known. We want to be about that as a church. The Christian life is a life that is always growing and bearing fruit in different ways. I think one of the ways we seek to do this practically in our church is caring and helping support and provide for the internship program. We want to care for these young men while they are being equipped and even as they head back to their home country, seek to support them in ways that we can through prayer or even financially. Paul closes this letter with greeting those in Crete who love them in the faith. So we see his just deep care and love for the believers here. We see this unity and deep love that Paul has for the believers. He deeply cares for them and desires God's grace to be continuing to work in their lives. Paul reminds throughout the letter of God's grace that justifies the moment you become a Christian And this grace is what continues to keep us until the final day.